This morning, I want to pray before we begin to preach the Word of God. I want us to be ready to be blessed by this this morning. Who, who, who wants to be blessed by hearing the Word of God? Who knows what blessing means? Blessing means that something physical and useful comes out of what you hear today that you can actually put into practice. So we tend to think of blessing a bit like sitting in front of the TV. What's that term? Somebody said Netflix and chill. Uh, don't think you know what that is. Don't I? Okay, I won't use that one. Uh, let's watch Stan. And uh, we sit there and you've got that machine that feeds you cheesels uh, in one hand and drink in the other. And we think that's blessing when we're lying, relaxing, doing something and things are being given to us the whole time. Have I lost everybody because of that? <laughs> okay, perhaps we should pray again. <laughs> Lord, just expunge the last uh, 60 seconds of what I said. Uh, I'll ask Brendan about it afterwards, but uh, until then, forget it. Okay, so as we move towards Easter, uh, we're bringing a focus on the whole area of uh, soul winning. Now, soul winning is a word that we use to replace the E word, which is evangelism, which we all cringe when we hear, because that's 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 uh, a uh, um, a word that we tend to hate because it conjures up images of door knocking and tracts and all sorts of things, which, uh, although had their day, are no longer relevant in a lot of today's um, sort of situations, and. Uh, this morning I want to talk about a, a situation that Paul got himself into, and I've called it the, to, to an unknown God. And so I want to, I want to read a, a passage of scripture to you this morning. I, I just want to set the scene. And so the scene is actually set in Acts chapter 17 verse 13. And so Paul's in a place called Berea. And it says, when some Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and stirred up trouble. The believers acted at once, sending Paul onto the coast while Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those escorting Paul went with him all the way to Athens. Then they returned to Berea with instructions for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. So we've got the apostle Paul, and he's in a volatile situation where troublemakers have been sent to stir up the situation. And the rest of the disciples have shipped him off to Athens to get out of trouble. But Paul, being Paul, decides that while he's in Athens, he might as well keep doing what he's good at and preach the gospel. And so we, we find as we continue in verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Interesting names. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching. They said, you're saying some rather strange things and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing 
the latest ideas. It was almost like they had Facebook and Twitter and Quora and all of those online things where people ask questions and discuss the latest ideas. Now, Paul's been brought before this high council, and the high council meet at a place called the Aeropagus. You still think that sounds a bit space age, but it's actually named for the god of war. Who, who's ever watched uh, Hercules, the uh, amazing journeys, or fantastic journeys, or whatever? Legendary journeys. Who, who, remer who remembers a character called Ares? In that? Who was Ares? The god of war. The Aeropagus is actually named after Ares. It's the hill of Ares, the Aeropagus. So he's on a hill named after the god of war. If you look it up, you'll find it's actually called Mars Hill because Mars was the Roman name for the god Ares. And so he's up on this hill in a foreign city in, the, in a place named after a foreign god confronted by men who think his ideas are foreign. Good place to be, Yes. But you see, Paul has been observing the Athenian customs, and so he uses one as an illustration to make his point. Verse 22. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way, for as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the earth and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. So you see, Paul, Paul's been very clever here. He's actually established a connection with their beliefs and then gives them something to think about by mentioning the major points of difference between one God and their many gods. And then he goes on to describe the qualities and character of God and his intention for a relationship with us, his people. So if you continue verse 25, it says, He gives himself life and breath. He, he himself, sorry, gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand whether they should rise or fall and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and to find him, though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring, and since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. So you see, Paul brings their attention to God's plan for mankind. He talks to them about God's character and what God wants and, and the benefits of actually having a relationship with God. He even throws in a little teaser saying, hey, you guys have said, your poets, your, your Greek poets have said, we are the offspring of God. So you're in this with me. And if, if that's true, I mean, if you're... If you're Believing with me that, that Almighty God is the unknown God, that He's the creator of heaven and earth, and He's perhaps a bit bigger than silver, gold idols, things you've carved out of a stone, don't you think? And so he, He's actually, rather than arguing with them, He's got them on side, and He's using what they believe to bolster His argument. Once He's got them understanding where He's coming from, He hits them with the main thrust of His message. 
goes straight for the juggler. He mentions the power of the cross. Verse 30 says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. <laughs> that was my contemptuous laugh. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So this is an interesting interaction that Paul is having with these Greek people. Now, the question I have for you today is what can we actually take home from this? What's the take-home value? What can we understand from what Paul has gone through with these Greeks? And what can we put into practice this week? Who wants to put something into practice this week? All the honest people drop their hands. <laughs> Most of us actually don't want to put things into practice because it means work. We, we're busy. We've got things to do. We've got plans to make, holidays to go on. Um, oh, no, it's just... Sorry. <laughs> but in reality, God's blessing comes on us where we actually, when we actually do the work of God. So we can actually take some take-home value, some things that we can do. Because as, as we get closer to celebrating Easter, I think it's important to reflect on what impact Jesus' death on the cross has on the life of the believer and the non-believer alike. Do you know that often the only difference is that non-believers are unaware that Jesus died for their sins so that they could have eternal life? To them, Jesus is actually the unknown God. What Paul was talking about 2,000 years ago is true today, that there is an unknown about Jesus Christ. Paul's message here ties in with our theme for Easter, which is the empty tomb. The empty tomb indicates that Jesus is not where most people are looking for him. Paul is showing us through this confrontation with non-believing Greek philosophers a way of letting the non-believers in our world know that Jesus is also not who they think he is. Because what we have here is a clash of worldview. Who knows what a worldview is? It's the way you view the world. And we all have a worldview. We all, we all look at the world through our own eyes. And I hate to tell you this, it's different from everybody else. The way I look at the world isn't the same, or not exactly the same, as any of you looking at the world. Which leads to a common belief that I'm right and you're wrong. And we all think that. Which leads to a lot of conflict, because we can't all be right. Unless we believe that we're all... No, I won't go down that pathway. So, Paul has come to Athens with his spiritual Christ-centered worldview. And he's encountered a culture with a philosophical man-centered worldview. And he recognized that people's perception of their world is their truth. Let me illustrate that with a quick story. You might have, you might have heard this one. It's a fairly common story, but I think it's, it's worth telling. It's the story of the traveler who was walking from a village in the mountains to a village in the valley. And as he walked along, he saw a monk working in a field. So he stopped and said to the monk, I'm on my way to the village in the valley. Can you tell me what it's like? And the monk looked up from his labor and he asked the man, he said, what was it like in the village 
No, he said, where have you just come from? And the man responded, I've come from the village in the mountains. What was that like? The monk asked. Terrible, the man exclaimed. No one spoke my language. I had to sleep on a dirt floor in one of their houses and they fed me some sort of stew that had yak or dog or perhaps even both in it. And it was freezing cold. I could not sleep. It was horrible. Ah, said the monk. And then I think you'll find the village in the valley much the same. And a few hours later, another traveller passed by and said to the monk, I'm on my way, guess where? To the village in the valley. And so the monk asked him the same question. He says, where have you come from? He says, I've come from the village in the mountain. And he said, what was it like? He says, it was awesome. He said, no one spoke my language, so we had to communicate using our hands and facial expressions. It was cool. I had to sleep on a dirt floor, and I've never done that before. It was a great experience. They fed me some sort of weird stew. No idea what was in it, but I just had to experience what the locals lived like. The weather was freezing cold, so I got to see how they lived in the cold weather as well. It's one of the best experiences of my life. And I think you'll find that the village in the valley is much the same, said the monk. Our perception is our reality. The same situation was there, but the way people perceived it is so different. that they, they both told the truth. The monk told them both the truth as well because they would find the same things wherever they went because of their perception of the truth. So we need to ask ourselves, what is our reality? Because we need to be certain about our reality. We can't be wishy-washy about our reality. Now, we, we believe in, I mean, I love that, that song we sang. We believe in God the Father, Christ the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the resurrection, the virgin. We need to be unshakable on those things. That is our reality. But then we look out and we say, what are other people's realities? Now, some are the same, but some are different. The third question we need to ask ourselves is, which of those realities should we worry more about? Because it's important on how we interact with people. See, most Christians focus on the fact the worldview of an unbeliever is so far from our Christian worldview that we need to point out the deficiencies in their worldview to bring it in line with ours. Who's noticed that this often does not go down well? See, but Paul, Paul was so secure and confident about his Christ-centered worldview, or his reality, that he was prepared to dive into the Greek worldview, or their reality, and affirm some of their beliefs in order to get them thinking about and accepting some variations to their philosophies. So let's look at what we can learn from Paul. Five points, if you're writing these down. One, he was not afraid to go into the marketplace. He was in hostile territory discussing matters on their terms. Two, he found common ground, pointed out similarities, and then advanced their thinking. For example, in Acts 17, verse 28, he says, As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, so he agrees with them, then we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. So after agreeing with him, he moves their thinking forward. He says, yeah, I agree with you, but if that's the case... 
shouldn't we think differently about who God is? So he found common ground. Instead of criticizing what they worship, he waxed lyrical about the God he worshipped. He didn't make comparisons. He just spoke about the glory of God. Verse 25. He himself gives life and breath to everything and satisfies every need. Who would like to know a God like that? Everybody. He says, from one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall and he determined their boundaries. So he's, God is not just meeting people's needs. He is all powerful. We, yeah, God needs to be big on the inside of us. It's no good worshipping a small God. He, he might be able to satisfy my needs during the day, but he struggles with Brendan's. We need a God who not only doesn't struggle with our needs, but doesn't struggle with the needs of a whole world of billions of people. He is a big God. And so Paul brought that to their attention. He continues by speaking about God's vision. Verse 27, his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Notice he didn't say and submit to God and do what he says. He says, yeah, it's perhaps it's a, it's a, we need to feel our way. To, he's he's humanising it. He's bringing it into the realms of our understanding. We need, to, we need to start investigating God. We need to sort of see what we feel about God. And we need to be looking at the possibility that we can find him. He's not using harsh terminology. He's drawing them in. He didn't ridicule their beliefs. He didn't compare Jesus to their gods. He didn't point out the errors in their thinking. No, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. Sorry. Trouble is we do that within the church. No, no, your theology's completely off the planet. Not going to agree with you. You're not going to sit in the same pew. I'm going to sit up the back. We're worshipping the same God. Let's not get too fussy here. Let's work out our differences in the loving ways. So, so sorry, I've just combined three and four there. Just to, so three was instead of criticising what they worship, he waxed lyrical about the God he worshipped. So in other words, he, he talked up Almighty God. Number four, he spoke about his conviction about Jesus Christ. Do you remember this is his worldview? He's more worried about what he thinks. He's more worried about getting across the fact that his belief and relationship with God has changed his life. It's not about their life, it's about his life. And the final thing, the fifth thing, he accepted their rejection as well as their acceptance. Verse 32, when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But the others said, we want to hear more about this later. And that ended Paul's discussion with them. He didn't sort of go out, no, 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 look, yeah, don't laugh. It's not funny. I, I, I want to convince you. He, he didn't do that. that uh, end of discussion. But some people wanted to talk about it later. And it says, some joined him and became believers. So I encourage you, in the weeks leading up to Easter, go out and emulate Paul. You don't have to change your name. don't have to change your gender if that's a problem. We want people to come on Easter Sunday and hear a message about how Jesus is not where they think he is. He's alive, not dead. He set us free from sin and the grave. But before we can invite them to experience that revelation on Easter Sunday, we need to start showing them that Jesus is also not who they think he is. 
So we need to do what Paul did. Go out into the marketplace. Go into hostile territory. Be not afraid. Find common ground, number two, and challenge people's thinking from a more familiar perspective. Number three, don't criticize people's beliefs. Live out yours. Don't just let them hear about Jesus. Let them see him. Number four, be convinced about your relationship with Jesus. Don't belittle them for not having one. And number five, accept them as they are, whether they reject or accept your beliefs. Don't base your relationships on whether they accept Jesus or not. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, in the second half of uh, chapter 9, verse 22, he says, Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. As it doesn't say, I try to find common ground with some in an effort to save everyone. It says, I try to find common ground with everyone, whether they've rejected or accepted the gospel message, so that I will find some who will accept my message. My challenge to you this morning is, that's all we have to do. We are called out into a hostile marketplace. We are called to be firm about our reality, our worldview, not to criticise other people's. We can advance people's thinking by finding common ground and not disparaging their beliefs, but finding things in common. Now, most people are good. Most people have good intentions. Most people have good morals. But so, so there's common ground that we can, we can talk about. But it's a question of they don't know the giver of life, the giver of morals, if you like. We need to spend more time accepting people. Can I ask while we're sitting here, who here believes that they have a gift or a talent or an ease at talking to non-believers about their faith in Christ? Who finds it reasonably easy to do? Excellent. Can I get you guys to come out the front? Now, I want you to come and stand up here right close to the stage. And then I want you to turn around. All you other people who didn't put up your hands, I want you to come and stand on the altar. If, if you want to be able to reach out into the marketplace, if you want to be able to talk about the gospel to other people, if you don't, then that's fine. And I know that's a slightly, um, what's the word, inflammatory way of saying things. So I do apologise. But please, don't, don't feel pressured to come up if you're a visitor. If you're unsure of perhaps what I'm saying. All I'm going to ask you guys to do is just to lay hands on people and pronounce this over them. You can take the gospel into the marketplace in Jesus' name. You can take the gospel into the marketplace in Jesus' name. That's all you have to pray. When they've prayed that over you, just make your way back to your seats and let 
somebody else be prayed for. This should all take round about 55 seconds. Okay, you ready? Go. Excellent. Thank you, guys. So hopefully now you all feel empowered to go to your workplaces, your schools, your, your homes, wherever it is you are, and to be Paul just for a week or two or three. Just learn what it's like to be in the marketplace, to be out there. And remember that Paul was one of the, the greatest church planters the world has ever seen. People laughed at him, scoffed at him, and his secret was he didn't care. His, his goal was to be all things to all people so that he could save some. And before we close, I just want to talk a bit more about worldview. When we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we actually choose a particular worldview. We choose to become associated with Almighty God. We choose to believe that we are saved, that we have eternal life, that we are children of God in relationship with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. And when we accept that worldview, we actually accept a mantle, if you like, a relationship, a connection with Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is the, the, the worldview that we, we carry through our life as a Christian. We build on that as we learn new things. As our relationship deepens, that, that view becomes uh, more precise, more defined, um, bigger. There are things that are added to it as we go along. But that first step is actually to change our worldview from a, a view of the world through the eyes of a sinner to viewing the world through the eyes of a sinner who's saved. And we do that by accepting that Jesus wants to have a relationship with us and committing to actually being an active part of that relationship. And in this church, we start people off on that journey by asking them to, out loud, make a commitment to a relationship with Jesus Christ by saying, Jesus, I invite you into my heart. I want to be a child of God. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to start a journey with a new worldview with you at my side. And every Sunday, we give people an opportunity to take on that worldview, to, to start that journey with Jesus Christ. So can I ask you while you're sitting there just to close your eyes for a moment? And if you're here this morning and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have never changed your worldview to a worldview from a saved perspective. Then I want to offer you in a moment an opportunity just to raise your hand. I'll acknowledge that and in a moment after that we can pray together to invite Jesus into your life. If you, you may be here, you may have done that before, but you may have walked away from that relationship and you recognize that you need to renew that connection renew your your worldview so if that either if you match either of those two situations and you want to do that right now while every eye is closed every head bow can I ask you to raise your hand so that I can see it and I'd love to pray a prayer with you to set your feet on that path is there anyone at all who wants to do that this morning love to pray with you okay 
Can you open your eyes and stand to your feet, please? I just want to pray, Lord, that every person here, under the sound of my voice, has been given a fresh anointing this morning to preach your gospel. You have put in a fresh spirit, a spirit of boldness and of a sound mind where fear has no place. And Lord, I thank you in advance, right here, right now, for stories of incredible testimonies where people step out in boldness and see it rewarded. In Jesus' name, bless these people. Amen.